going to pray that God does that work with us together, uh, and then, then we'll roll from there. God, I thank you for uh, this text that is so meaningful in the life of your church. God, that you have used these words for many generations to drive reform, to encourage your church. I pray that as we receive these words in our time and our place, that we would receive them as words from you, that our hearts would be lifted up and minds would be engaged so that we can hear your voice from these texts and be understanding what our action is from it. In your name, amen. So you know that moment of high-stake conversations that you have sometimes where you just have to talk to somebody and you need to get something accomplished in this conversation. It might be a goal, it might be some outcome you're trying to achieve, or maybe it's just that big question and see how that other person responds, and you need to have this talk. You have a lot riding on it. Something's going to come out of this situation that's going to change the next day, the next week, months, years, or your entire life on what happens in this next conversation. Those are the high-stake conversations that we're thinking about today. So I reflect back a little bit on my life, and I was thinking about talking with my wife Katie back in February 14th, 2003, so quite a while ago, Valentine's Day. We're sitting at the rec hall in the college uh, that we went to together, kind of hemming and hawing, having this conversation with each other. My wife's doing most of the talking. As we're going through that, uh, I'm finally trying to get up enough courage to, to say something. We're eating these, I don't think they make them anymore, those little hearts, the candy hearts. You remember the conversation hearts? So we're having these on the table. I think we got them like in the mail from one of our parents or something. We're kind of sharing these, talking through those. And the whole time, I know I need to get something accomplished in this conversation. I, I'm going to say something big here. And my wife is just eating away at these candies, making jokes, saying whatever. So I'm waiting for my opportunity to move this conversation forward. So we're eating the candies, laughing at the terrible flavors of some of these chalky candies. you have ever had them? Some of the sayings are absurd. Kind of wait our way through them. And so we're eating one every other, talking about them. We get down to the last conversation heart. And it says, me and you. I seize that moment and I say, yeah, let's talk about me and you for a moment. <laughs> and I asked her, I said, look, we need to date. And this is like a for real thing. Like, I'm going to marry you. This is where we're going to go. And I take that opportunity and make the situation happen. So that's one of those intense, I'm ready to seize on this high stakes conversation and make it happen. It might be a little cheesy, but I mean, it's worked for 15 years here or so. So I guess it works out. But there was a lot riding on that. And at the time, I couldn't think of any bigger conversation than how am I going to start this? How am I going to lead in to this moment? So that's like the intensity of a romantic conversation and all the emotions and the tendency that rides on that. But think about also those conversations where we speak to power, where there's a lot riding on a conversation you have with an individual who exudes influence over you in some way or another. Now, I don't know, some of us in the church may speak to political figures on occasion or some high-up organizational leaders. Um, that's not particularly part of my background yet, so I haven't done anything quite like that. But I try to think in the workplace. Uh, from time to time, you have a conversation with someone who has a lot of authority, someone who may control your future, and you think, like, what am I going to do in this conversation? You find yourself in a high-stakes uh, arrangement, right? You're trying to get a point across to them. You want to be heard. You have to be careful with the words to try to get this outcome that you're trying to achieve, and you want to be thought of well in that occasion. It can be risky. It can be, if you know the conversation's coming, it's one thing, and then there's those moments when they just get thrown on you, and you're like, wow, here's the moment. I got to say the right thing. I got to do the right thing, 
in that moment. So I thought about another one from my, my work career, maybe about 10 years ago or so. I was at another company, and uh, I was a new guy. I just started the job a few months, or maybe a month or so at that time. And the COO, the chief operating officer, had flown in, and he was at our office to speak for this company. I was pretty excited. I was invited to a meeting. I was going to come and hear him speak. I thought, okay, this is going to be like a cool opportunity to hear what he's going to say, learn a lot of things. I'm brand new here. I want to make a good impression. About 10 minutes before the meeting started, uh, I got a phone call. So I had to help a customer with an order. That was part of my job. Something had gone wrong, and I decided, you know what? I need to help this customer. Thought I could wrap it up quickly. Never happens that way. So I'm late for this meeting with the COO, a very important individual is there. So I finish up the call, and I think, okay, I'm going to just go to this meeting and you know, try to see what I can pick up being a few minutes late. So I think I'll just open the door, I'll slide in the back. I open the door, room's packed, there's tons of people in there. The COO stops his presentation and looks over at me, who I've never met, doesn't probably even know my name, and he says, you know, I really feel like we should institute a rule that says the last person to arrive at the meeting should just be fired. You know, and you're just like, okay, that's a kind of a tense response. Nice to meet you as well. You're thinking all these things. You're in that moment, and you think, what, what do I do? How do I have the exact right response in this moment? So the only thing I could think of is say, very sorry. I was spending my time helping one of our valuable customers with his order. The COO just kind of stops, smiles at me turns back to his PowerPoint to continue waxing on about customer centricity and how we need to dedicate our company to customers, and he kept his mouth shut. I've had countless of times go well, and probably even more of them go terrible, where I put my foot in my mouth in that moment. But you know those situations where you have to get just the right words across to the individual that have to land to try to make the impact. We have in the story of Nehemiah just such an occasion. He's before the king, he has a high-stakes conversation, and he needs to get this across. He needs to get an outcome. And what we want to learn about today is as we're in those kind of scenarios, we are going to have opportunities where we are going to speak to power. And as ones who are reforming the church, who are seeking God's glory in the life and action of this church, in all of our workplaces, in all of the places where we have influence, we will be speaking to power. So in those moments, what do we learn from Nehemiah, and how can that have meaning for us as we live? So the big idea for today's message is really going to be just from that text uh, that, that Matt talked about with the, the kids from Proverbs 21.1, which is, the heart of every king is in the hand of the Lord. The, the, the king's heart is, in the, is the stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills, is the exact words of the proverb. So as you think about that text, we're going to see that lived out and fleshed in this passage in Nehemiah. And then we're going to talk about simply, what does that mean for us? What do we take away from that in our lives, this truth? So to kind of understand that, I want to walk through a little bit more of a detail of what is happening with King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah in this scenario. Walk through the same verses that we looked at last week, but emphasize from here, okay, here's Nehemiah with this great burden that God has put on his heart, and he's going to speak now to a person, an individual who we know from history, and he gets an outcome that's needed that's required for the work of God to continue. How does God intervene in this individual in certain ways, and what actions is Nehemiah taking to lead this forward? So as we dig into this passage, we're going to see just from verse 1, I just read a moment ago, laid out from you, here's the first scene that takes place. So let me tell you a little bit about King Artaxerxes. He ruled from 464 to 424 BC, so you think 450 years or so before Jesus was born. 
He controlled the entire Middle East, from India and Iran all the way across down to Egypt and Libya and in uh, Africa, as well as north up into Greece, parts of Greece and Turkey. He controlled waterways. Think about this for a moment. The Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, parts of the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, and the Red Sea. So he had a huge empire of great influence. Think about just the commerce of those ports that he controlled to be able to have trade running throughout his empire. It's been about 20 years since Artaxerxes came to reign when we have this scene for us in, in, uh, in Nehemiah. And it says it's the month of Nisan. So we're looking at about April of 445 BC when this passage takes place. It's taking place in modern-day Iran in a place called Susa is what we have in the biblical text. This is a fortress, a citadel place that's been rebuilt and designed as the location of choice for Persian uh, kings. It's the summer palace of sorts, a place to cool off and set up his, uh, his reign instead of most of the hot deserts that are there. And the city where Susa took place it was full of power and beauty. So I feel like you need to get a little bit of a sense for this. When we think about the scene and we hear about some king that's got a strange name, picture with me what we're facing. So as we walk into the city of Susa, there are these large walls, taller than about two or three of us on our, standing on top of our shoulders going up high. As you look at these walls lining the city, they're not just concrete walls or the, ho- or the walls we put by highways to keep sound down. No, they're picturesque. They're marked with blues and purples and yellows that have been painted on in these friezes to accentuate the beauty and the richness of the city. There's warriors scenes that are depicted on each of these walls. So as you come in, you're aware this is a military power. There's mythical creatures, the griffins, the sphinxes that are marked on these walls. So as you would walk into the city of Susa, you would be marked by the wealth, the beauty, the grandeur of what is there. These walls have still been found. This is a real place that sometimes I think we miss when we read the biblical text. But this still exists. There's parts of the city still in Iran in the city of Shush uh, where Suze was located. There's parts of it that have been drawn away to the British Museum as well as uh, other museums around the world. There's a similar wall to this in the MFA down in Boston. You've been down there, don't take the green line. It takes forever. But if you've been down there, it's kind of like a little bit of a game to find a parking spot. But once you win that, you can go to the MFA And you go in there, you will see like these lion walls that are present. They're huge and magnificent. And you see them, and they're really there. These pages of Scripture really existed. This king existed. He had this real conversation. And we have marks of this as well. So you walk in, and you get closer to where the king is. There's three courts that are lined up that you would walk through till you get to the king in his throne room. And as you come to the last section, there's these lions that would be present. They're huge mountains of lions that are present. Uh, before you get to the king. And then as you walk in there, you're immediately marked by just the bedazzling gold and silver all over the walls, something that we would never do. It would be way too gaudy for even the craziest rapper you can think of to have his home decked out like this. But gold and silver just marked on all the walls. The aroma of spices coming into the room, fragrances there. And as you look in the room, who's in there? There's plenty of bodyguards. There's the elite of the day. There's entertainers all gathered around one man sitting in this chair, and he's the king. And then you look next to the king, and there's Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now think about what this means. There's a position that, as far as I know, no one holds this one, but it's a pretty interesting gig. It would have been a position he would have gotten over many years of cultivated trust to eventually become the cupbearer to the king. 
His future was directly tied to the king's as he would sample wine before it was handed to the king. Uh, if you think about antiquity, if you read any of that, you can think that poisoning the wine of the king was a great way to start a new nation or take over as a coup or some way. So it's a, a pretty often thing. So this was Nehemiah's job to act as the administrator, the person who took care of all the king's drinking, wine, wine and water, so that it would be before him and would be safe to drink. And that last final test is Nehemiah would taste it before he handed it over to the king. So you think about it, pretty good drinks in this job. A little bit of an occupational hazard, though. So as soon as somebody wants to take out the king, you're the first one to go. You know, that's how that's going to go. So some perks, but definitely some downside as well. If you want to think about what this is like, think about Carson from Downton Abbey, right? That esteemed butler who is so close to the Crowleys that he has to have this relationship. He's so tied into the family, but all he does is he serves and he spends all his time in connection with them. And then there was only the, really the fear of being sacked, maybe, uh, for Carson there in the the household at Downton Abbey. However, to exit the king's service here usually was by death, was usually how uh, someone would leave being the cupbearer. So as he had this role functioning greatly, we have this recorded from Greek historians and others of this exact position of cupbearer and how they handed their drinks to the king, lots of details that we won't go into right now, but we know this was a legitimate position present. He also not only was in the throne room with the king, he also would spend time in the private residence with the king. The guy's got a drink, right? So somebody's got to be there to make sure it's still good. So he had the ear of the king in so many settings. There's really no closer position that you could imagine this person having than Nehemiah to have an opportunity to speak to one of the most powerful people of the world. But then think about Artaxerxes. We're saying he's in the hand of the Lord. This great king of so much power, so much wealth, Nehemiah sitting next to him. This person is in the hand of the Lord. How do, how do we know that's present? Well, the several marks of his life to bring him to this point that I think are worth mentioning. Because sometimes we just read the pages of Scripture and we think, okay, he, he does what he wants. It was a foregone conclusion. Of course this guy would do exactly what Nehemiah asked him to do. No, it's quite a bit different. See, Artaxerxes came to power because of a coup, a fighting and infighting in the empire, so that he eventually had to win out instead of the alpha that killed off all his rivals. And then he went about systematically reorganizing all of the empire, putting in new taxation, new leaders in each of the provinces so that he would have loyalty around him. Likely had a big part of why Nehemiah might have gotten the position that he had. And then within the Persian Empire itself, it was set to a perfect opportunity. There was religious freedom in Persia. Hard to believe, you know, when we think about the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, usually the understanding was you would worship the God of the winner. That's who you should worship. Persia thought differently, said, no, you can still worship your God of your homeland because really all we're interested in is peace, happiness. That's a great way to do it. And more importantly, taxes. So if you're happy and you're quiet and you're working well, you can pay us more money. You see sometimes similarities in how religious freedom functions in the world today. Keep everything happy. Pay your taxes. That's how it can work, right? Similar in Persia. That's how it was set up. Keep things healthy. Keep it calm. Pay your taxes. So there was an outbreak of, of rebellion that had happened in Israel only about a, few, about a decade or so prior to this request from Nehemiah in the area of Israel uh, was located. You saw in the text, when we read it, you might have seen the words, uh, the province beyond the river. That exact province had an outbreak of rebellion against King Artaxerxes just a decade before. So we look at this request from Nehemiah, and it seems really clear that there's a drive for Artaxerxes to have stability in this region, 
that he needs someone he can trust there so that his wishes can be carried out. And that's the occasion in which Nehemiah is bringing this request to him. This is the person with his own self-interest, his own needs, his own desires that's being asked this question. And in the Persian Empire, not only is there religious freedom, but there was precedent for that. There was an Egyptian previously called Ujahoraset, who is an Egyptian who also asked for something similar years before to set up a temple in Egypt so that he could rebuild the Egyptian religion in Egypt. So what I want you to see from that is this is a real historical scenario in which Nehemiah was acting. He was pleading to a real person that we know from history, Artaxerxes. And then we know that God moved on this person, Artaxerxes, to grant this request to Nehemiah. So when we look through that, there were so many things at play, so many marks of God's sovereign care to make this happen. Nehemiah put this request to Artaxerxes, and once it's granted, you can see that Artaxerxes is 100% doing this out of his own self-interest and desire to keep himself safe from Egypt, from Greece, these buffer states that were turmoil. But he's also doing it as God has worked in his hand. There's a reason why Nehemiah is the one that's standing before him asking this question. There's a reason why it's the Jewish people who are given this opportunity in the world as opposed to all the other nations that are present at this time. Each of those significant details have been led up kind of bit by bit by bit for this moment when Nehemiah gets to ask his question. So we just look at the text for this next uh, section. You can see he comes before the king. He's saddened. The king uh, hears it. He begins to uh, notice the issue. Nehemiah makes his wise appeal. We go to the next text. Uh, next slide there. And as we emphasize here, the king be- again begins to ask, what is Nehemiah's action? He prays to the God of heaven. He knows, here's my moment. I have to recognize where I'm at. And then he makes the big ask. If it pleases the king, if I found favor, send me to Judah. Let me do this action of rebuilding. Let's go to one more text. Uh, next slide there. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, so the chances are this is probably in that private residence, a location where very, very few people are going to be. And here is the queen next to King Artaxerxes. Um, and this is where Nehemiah is in this very close situation. And the king has decided to grant the requests, answers with the affirmative questions here, asking for it. And then as he gets ready, Nehemiah knows to ask for additional clarifications so that he can get the passage with these letters that are going to give him authentication. I think there's one more slide, it looks like, after that. And he's asking for this wood that will be provided. Uh, We read through that text so he can do these various works. And then he recognizes all of this is from the hand of God. So what did we learn? Gave you some history. Gave you a little bit of context. Hopefully you can see it's, it's a legitimate situation, a place that happened in time, a place that this happened. But what do we learn from this, okay? We don't have Persia really in place anymore quite the same way. None of us are cupbearers. What do we take away from this understanding? And this is going to be where we really kind of park. We learned kind of two basic lessons from the way that Nehemiah approaches this. Number one, the next slide, is that our position and vocation are not accidents, but divine appointments. Our position, our vocation, wherever we work, wherever we're at in our life right now, this is something that isn't accidental in what's being placed there, but is actually God's divine appointment in our life. So Nehemiah was a Jew who became the cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire. What a place to find himself, right? Was this a pure accident? One thing led to another? Is this what he wanted to do when he would grow up and he answered this for a long time? I mean, kind of thinking that's probably not how that played out. 
But whatever, at this exact moment in time, Nehemiah finds himself in exactly the right moment to take action on the report for his nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. As he's there, we think, where has God placed us, right? So many occasions, so many parts of our lives, from our schooling, from the conversations we've had, from the things we've filled out, for you to be exactly where you are, to live where you're at, to have the job that you have, to know the people that you know, to have those contacts, God has put you exactly in that place up to this moment. So I want us to think about that a little bit more, about our vocation, the way that we spend our time, what God has called us to. So Martin Luther, the German reformer of the 16th century, he, he spoke of vocation of Christian, Christians in everyday life, and he, he thought of it as heroic. Um, as God works in the world, um, Luther would say he's in combat with the devil, and as he does that work in the world, our, our vocation or our work is really part of that battleground. So he would describe our work uh, as, as being heroic as we act contrary to culture, as we do things that are different than people would expect or were conventional in our work. So anytime that we do something like love a coworker or make a decision out of truth or for justice for an individual or to do something, anything that's not self-serving, we're doing something that is remarkably different than is the natural way that that work and position should be done. So Luther would describe it as really combat between God, uh, God in the world and against the devil. And we function as a weapon or a tool in God's hand as he fights the devil. So as God is working in the world to do things, he's using our work, if you think about it, right? The creation, the work that's being done, our work actually is accomplishing God's purposes. He's doing something in individuals' lives to change how things work in society, how a particular business functions, how we care for individuals that we cross paths with. God is using us as instruments or tools to accomplish that work. So it shouldn't be surprising then that where Satan tempts us or brings us the most challenge is also in those workplace environments. He takes something where you're able to work and accomplish God's good in the world and he wants to tempt us and pull us away from that desire to distract us and turn us to things that are against God's work. So think about the clarity as we recognize this. As we try to do this work, we have the opportunity to do more than just punch a clock, put food on the table, or self-actualize as we climb the corporate ladder. We have an opportunity to do the work of God in our environments. Wherever God has placed us, whatever that work looks like, you have people there, you have some work that you're trying to accomplish for a business, yourself, the company, some way, or in our homes as we would do that same work. Any of those things, we have been called to those to do God's work in them. So like Nehemiah, we have an opportunity to recognize the moments, these high-stakes conversations that we find ourselves in, pray to the God of heaven, and then speak. What is God calling us to do in those settings of opportunity, much like Nehemiah? As we think about what that could be, it could be speaking up for the mistreated in some places. It might be speaking clearly and unapologetically about our faith or its implications to any kind of power that we have present in our workplace or school. Or think about just the opportunity to show mercy to an individual who doesn't deserve it in any way, and you have that opportunity to speak and care for them in an appropriate way. God might be calling us to any of those places, even in this week. But then secondly, not only is our vocation uh, something God has, has placed on us, but secondly, God is the ultimate power who moves the other powers. So this story is really, and we can't miss it, a battle of worldviews, a battle of power that's taking place. 
God, through Nehemiah, is accomplishing something in a world that is utterly against him and pagan and designed to do everything to thwart what God's work was. But God used an individual like Artaxerxes to accomplish his will. He turned a situation to accomplish something for Israel, for Nehemiah, that was important. We're often stumped by the interplay of God's absolute sovereignty and the free actions of us as humans. But the Bible makes clear that there's both, okay? We do stuff. We're responsible for what happens. We have to act. We have to do this. God says, obey. God says, love. God calls us throughout the imperatives to take certain action. But at the same time, we know that God is uh, uh, sovereign, absolutely, over every detail that's happening in life. So we're moving, we're acting, we're responsible for those actions, but God is orchestrating and working all things after the counsel of his own goodwill. So rather than spend a lot of time arguing what that's like, let's think about what this feels like in everyday life. So Nehemiah strategized and he planned and he prayed and then he spoke. And God had already worked so many things present in the history and the location and the opportunity so that Artaxerxes would be disposed to be able to respond in such a way. So as we go out, we hustle, we work hard to the glory of God, being truthful, honest in our dealings with people at work, trying to love and care for people around us in all the contexts he's placed us in. And yes, oftentimes God will reward us in those efforts. But he also moves around the pieces to help us get to the place and the accomplish the goals that he desires for us. So he changes those bosses, moves coworkers into your lives, works the business to be successful or unsuccessful so that your product is more in fit than another. Why? So that he can put you in the right place to accomplish his goals. We don't know what those are. It could be huge things like Nehemiah asking for something huge that needs to happen. Or as we've talked along the way, it could be just those everyday obediences of following God, loving a coworker, caring for a family, earning things to accomplish a desire that God has. So all of this, we realize that the heart of the king or really any power is in the hand of the Lord. It's like a stream of water, the proverb says, right? So let's think about that for just a moment. As he emphasizes the stream of water and the king's heart is like that in, in the Lord's hand. A stream of water, think about it in the ancient Near East, a desert land, right? What is water for? Water is used to produce uh, growth in a very dry place. So as you redirect the water, you divert it, you're able to determine where is there going to be flourishing? Where is there going to be abundant life in the midst of a barren desert? So it is with the king's heart as he's moved one way or the other to bestow his favor and his abundant care on Nehemiah and apparently the Jewish people because he showed up at the right time and asked the right question. Just seemed to happen that way. The king's care and provision in that way provides the opportunity for Israel to flourish. So similarly, as we are in our jobs and places and it just seems like you're recognized, you're placed in this position, God gives you an opportunity, you get the raise, you get noticed, someone isn't mad at you, you get placed at just the right time, or maybe it had to happen through some negative circumstances and you got moved into where you're going to be. In all of those things, God is behind it and moving you in just the right way so that your life, your actions as an instrument in his hand can bring the flourishing that he desires to accomplish. So any of the political powers that we have over us, we can think about that as well. We pray for them. We ask for God's work in their life, that they would see the light of Christ in their life and believe, of course. But we also come to them with a very simple ask, whether our mayors or governors, the president. As we pray for them, as we're told to, we're praying that God would work in them in such a way that he would steer their hearts, move their hands, so that their attention would be for the good of the church. 
And as we, as a church, a body here, uh, some mile road work throughout New England, that's something we have to be praying for. We have to be asking in prayer and then ready for the moment when we speak in some of these circumstances so that God will use us and will move those in power to give us the favor, to give us that opportunity. And this gives us at least an example of that being a great option. God can do that. God has the power to be in control, to move us to accomplish this aim. So we can have great confidence in this. So, again, a little bit of a different look of the sermon. We've looked at this text a little bit. Hopefully you felt it beat with you, uh, kind of how Nehemiah brought this to work. But what's important is that we take this real-life historical scenario and we draw from it those two big ideas that are still applicable to us as we think about how we have been placed at just the right place by God to accomplish his work. And then secondly, take great confidence in that God has everything under control. He is moving all of these things to accomplish his good. We should be ready to speak and trust that he will make that happen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this text. I pray that you would build up our hope and our confidence in your, your sovereign control. God, we know that you've called us to many different places. It's exciting to think of the homes, the neighborhoods, the various jobs that you have placed each individual uh, throughout this, this church in. God, I pray that we would be seeking you to know how to use those places of influence, those opportunities that you give us to speak, to speak and to know that you will do a work through this. And God, help us to trust that you are moving things in the way that they need to and trust that you're accomplishing your purposes in the world. In your name.